Well, I hope, church family, you are ready to get wet this morning. This week, we installed new four-dimensional pews to try to make the Bible come alive. So as we move, as the text moves, your pew's going to move, and as we spit water, it's going to spit. Just kidding, it's not at all. Uh, uh, some of you are really disappointed by that, and I apologize to get your hopes up. But uh, metaphorically, we are going to get a little wet this morning. We finished Philippians last week, and we're going to spend the next four weeks walking through what I think is uh, an incredibly timely place of Scripture for us to walk through, and that's the book of Jonah. So I'm going to invite you, if you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Jonah. If you're not familiar, if you go, how do I get there, Pastor? The easiest way is let your, your Bible fall right open in the middle. And then turn to the right about 10 books, and you'll end up at Jonah. And we're going to pick up in chapter 1, Jonah, and we're going to dive right in. The book wastes no time. Listen to what it says here, Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So with no word of introduction, no real background, the, the book of Jonah starts off with, with action. The Word of God comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah, his name means dove. His father name, Amittai, means truth. We, we see Jonah, son of Amittai, one other place in Scripture. He's found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 where it tells us that Jonah was a prophet uh, under the divided kingdom. You've got the kingdom of Israel split in half, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom. You'll see the northern kingdom called Ephraim or Israel. And, and he's in the northern kingdom, and he's under uh, the king Jeroboam II. And in King Jeroboam II's reign, he will be the most powerful of all the rulers of the northern kingdom. Under his leadership and actually in accord with Jonah's prophecy, he will lead military conquests to restore the borders of the northern kingdom to territory they had lost from the time of the United Kingdom and David, their king. However, under King Jeroboam, the people of Israel will live and walk in ways of wickedness. And Jonah, no doubt, as a prophet in that time would know the sting of loneliness and hardship. He would know the holy fire of God in his heart, and he would know the divine word and upon his lips, and he would see the people continue to reject the Lord. He would know the hardship and pain it is to declare the Lord because he's a prophet. And church family, we need to remember, a prophet in the Old Testament was not something that someone chose. To be a prophet was a, was a calling that God himself had to give one. We see with Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah, before you were even in your mother's womb, I picked, I chose you to be a prophet. And the prophet would be the voice of the Lord for the people. In good times, the prophet would be a source of wisdom, comfort, encouragement. In bad times, the prophet would be the proclaimer of hard truth, calling people who had strayed back to the Lord, back to his ways. And unfortunately for the prophet, the prophet would also come with that message of, of repentance was also the warning. If you refuse to repent, then the Lord will bring greater and further discipline, calamity, trouble. Jonah the prophet, under Jeroboam ministering in the northern kingdom, the word of the Lord comes to him saying, get up, 
Go to Nineveh. The, the language there is, is immediate. The way the construction of the Hebrew verbs is, is it's not just, hey, get up and, and you know, get up. You know, figure out which, uh, you know, Expedia, Travelocity, which has got the best travel deals. Uh, make, sure, make sure, you know, we're on a tight budget here. The word is Jonah. Get up now and go to Nineveh. And this is unusual for a prophet. Prophets are, are there for the people of God. And, and here he's not just being sent to a, another people, but a people that are pretty good ways away. It's going to take him a while to get there. And it's not just any people, but the people of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a, he says, God says, the, the great city of Nineveh. And he says that when you go there, you're going to cry against it. You're going to proclaim for their wickedness had come up before me. Now, Nineveh, uh, Nineveh was a prominent city. We, we know that its origins date back to Nimrod from Genesis 10. It was a prominent city and would become really the, the final capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And throughout the century prior to Jonah's life, the Assyrians were Israel's chief opponent, an afflictor of torment. We know after Jonah's life, it'll be mere decades before the Assyrians return to prominence, and God uses the Assyrians to bring his final level of discipline upon the northern kingdom, when in 722 BC, the Assyrians will come and, and sack the northern kingdom and disperse all of those Israelites. We call them now the Lost Ten Tribes because they were dispersed all throughout. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, were wicked People. In fact, as I did and studied this week, the real truth is the specific things, and we know a lot of specific things about what they would do. They're honestly so graphic, it's really not appropriate for me to speak of them with kids in the room. I'll put it this way they make ISIS look like medium salsa compared to extra hot salsa. They are a wicked people, and they're in a, they're in a temporary period of, of, of where their influence has waned. And, and in this time, when we, when we think Jonah is likely going around 759, three things have happened. There's been two devastating famines that have come in and afflicted the people of Nineveh. In addition, years prior, there has been a total eclipse of the sun, which some believe would have set the people of Nineveh on edge, as if... A divine being was trying to get their attention. And God says to Jonah, he says, get up, go now to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it, preach against it, proclaim against it, for their wickedness has come up. God has said that they've been wicked and now that wickedness has, has risen to a boiling point. But look what Jonah does. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah hears this word. He hears this word from the Lord, this, this word where God calls for instant obedience, and initially Jonah obeys. He hops up, but he didn't go to Nineveh. In fact, he actually goes the polar opposite way. You're going to notice this pattern with Jonah throughout the first two chapters. There's this constant movement of Jonah. God calls Jonah to rise up, and Jonah instead goes down. He goes down to Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish would have been, um, uh, at that time, the westernmost city of the known world. It would take him to the coast of Spain. 
As far away, it says, from the presence of the Lord. Now, the question is, what do we mean by the presence of the Lord? Because Jonah, in a moment, will see him make a confession. Jonah obviously knows there's nowhere he can flee from God. So what do we mean by fleeing from the presence of the Lord? And in Jonah's ministry in the northern kingdom, it's not near the temple in Jerusalem. What's meant? What's meant to flee from the presence of the Lord means Jonah is rejecting and turning away from a life of obedience and service to the Lord. God, you want me to go there? My answer is no, and no some more. In fact, I'm going to go down the other way, and I'm going to pay a fare, a, a massive price. Some think the language even means that he paid for the whole boat. Regardless, it would have cost him a lot of money to get on that boat. And prophets didn't have a high salary. It took effort and will Jonah is in deliberate defiance. He finds this boat. He go down, goes down into the boat to flee from the presence, from the service of the Lord, to go to a place where he won't be surrounded by reminders of the God and to whom he is rebelling against. And they're out on the sea. They've, they've pulled out of port. In verse 4, the Lord hurled, the Lord threw down a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they, they hurled the cargo, uh, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone below, once again going down, into the hold of the ship, and lain down and fallen sound asleep. So here's the scene. Jonah gets, gets on the boat. Maybe he, maybe he watches the port out of sight, but he goes down into the hold, into that place uh, where he is the most useless in fighting a storm, and he is also in the greatest danger of dying from the storm should the boat go down. And he's sound asleep. In fact, the word there is for a comatose-like sleep. Meanwhile, the Lord hurls a great and mighty storm, and it has whipped up the sea out on the Mediterranean in a frenzy, and so much so that when it says the boat's about to break apart, it's, it's the only time you see this verb used this way. It Literally, it personifies the boat. The boat was thinking about breaking up. The boat wanted to just shatter. So realize this if you're the sailors. Here is this unprecedented storm out on the open sea, little chance of survival, and not only are you fighting the storm, the winds and the rains, you're fighting your own ship whose will is to completely break into pieces. And they recognize there's something great, whether they know there's divine hands behind the storm or whether it's just their response, they cry out. They begin crying out, crying out for their gods, trying to get their, their attention. And then at some point in this, as they're crying out to their gods, they're throwing stuff overboard, they all go, wait a minute, we're, we're short two hands. Where's Jonah? Where's the guy we're carrying? Where's the guy who paid for our service to go out here? They find him sound asleep in the cargo hold. Look what the captain says. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Which is a really ironic question. I, how, how on earth are you sound asleep in this wooden boat with probably not a very comfortable bed, rocking back and forth, slamming? How are you sound asleep? And he says, get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will not be concerned about each of us that we would perish. And there's an irony there. When the captain comes down and says, get up, call on your God, the words in Hebrew are the exact same words God told Jonah in verse 1. The captain comes down and says, get up, cry. 
Get up, speak. Get up. So each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. They've come to the conclusion, someone on this boat's a sinner and, and their God is, taking, is trying to get their attention. So they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. Lots here would not be what you and I might think of, or maybe this is just me. It's not where they break a bunch of sticks and you drew the short stick. The lots are essentially uh, old kind of dice. They'd take some stones and they would paint one side dark and the other side light and you would roll the two stones. And if the two stones came up uh, both sides dark, you're good. They come up one and one, roll again. If they come up both sides light, you're the guilty party. So just picture the scene, storm is raging, they've done everything they can, and I'm not exactly sure how they cast lots. Obviously, they weren't sitting around the game table just chilling and throwing the dice. I don't know if it's one running over to this guy who's trying to hold the cell, and he throws them, and I don't know, it'd be a chaotic scene, but nonetheless, the lots are thrown, and Jonah, awoken from his slumber to hear the very words of God come through now the captain's mouth, it falls on Jonah. So they look at him. They say, tell us now, uh, why has this come upon? Whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your people? They're putting him on a mini trial. And notice his response. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. What an ironic statement. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people of Israel, and I, I fear. I live in reverent worship of, even though the whole reason I'm here and this is going on is because I'm in disobedience. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land, and that's not just a random statement. You see, all of these sailors, the likely God they would have worshipped, claim to be the God of the sea. So when Jonah makes this statement, what he's making is an evangelistic statement saying, I worship the actual God of the sea. Not just the sea, but of the sea and the dry land. I, I worship the God who is in heaven over all. And then these men, when they hear this, they become extremely frightened, fear upon fear. Because now they're not just afraid of the storm. Now they recognize that there is a God greater than their gods, with a greater power than their gods, and they're carrying the guy that God has hacked off with. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So at some point, Jonah said, look, I'm trying to get out of serving the Lord. And they just didn't really understand whose Lord Jonah's Lord was. So they said to him, what should we do so that the sea would become calm? For the sea has become, it was becoming increasingly stormy. The storm is just getting bad to worse. So Jonah said, pick me up and throw me, hurl me into the sea. God hurled the storm. You've tried hurling your cargo. It's not working. Instead, hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will calm down for you. For I know on my account this great storm has come upon you. However, look what the men do. Here we have a prophet of God in Jonah who's fleeing the assignment of God, who, because of his disobedience, now the lives of other people are threatened. Rather than getting up and asking the Lord, non-believers come to him and say, hey, would you pray to your God? Which, by the way, the text doesn't say that he actually does. So here you have a prophet of God who shows little care for people, yet look at what these sailors do. 
They know it's him. They know he's guilty. They know what to do. And look what they do. However, the men rode desperately to return to land. You see, in their minds, we don't want to kill this guy. We don't want the guilt of that. Let's, and they, they're, they're fighting. If we can just take him back to land, then God will deal with them. There is more compassion and concern for human life out of the sailors worshiping pagan gods than there is out of the prophet of God. But the sea would, was becoming even stormier against them, so they called on the Lord. So they reach out to the one true God. And they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So basically say, Lord, we don't know what this man's fully guilty of, and, and we throw him in there, he's going to die, and we don't want to be punished for that, because we're, we're responding to you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. You can just imagine with me that picture, this boat's woolen back and forth, the ships wanting to break apart, winds and rains, it's choppy, they pick up Jonah, they throw him into the sea, and I don't know exactly, does Jonah bob out there for a little bit? Does he just go down and cannonball and just sink to the depths? Don't know. But instantly when Jonah hits that water, calm, and look at the response of the sailors. Then the men, the third time we see them fearing, except first time they feared the storm, the second time they feared upon fear, the fact that the one true God was putting the storm. But now look, then the men feared upon feared the Lord greatly. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, we don't know for sure. Does this mean that these men had a conversion experience where all of a sudden now as a result of the storm, they're going to be true followers of Yahweh? Don't know. It doesn't tell us that. It does tell us that at minimum, there is at least a recognition that the God of Israel, the God of Jonah, he is the one true powerful God, and they make sacrifices what they can there, and the vows they make are undoubtedly once they get back to land to go and to worship this God. And this is really where chapter one leaves us. God's word comes to Jonah, the prophet, go cry against. Jonah does the opposite, flees the other direction. In his flight, his, he endangers the lives of, of innocent sailors who try to figure out what's going on. They show more compassion to Jonah than Jonah does to them and certainly the Ninevites at this point in the story. But then through all of it, we see God sovereignly chasing after his prophet, unwilling to let his prophet just run. We see God's grace and mercy in dealing with Jonah, sparing the lives of the sailors, and we all of a sudden see a massive turn of men who would never have worshipped the one true God now worshipping the one true God. And this is, this is the story we find here in chapter one, church family, and you and I need to understand today that like Jonah, you and I have a calling from Christ. Jonah's an interesting figure, and we'll, we'll get into this later on, not today. There's some interesting comparisons. Jesus references Jonah when he says, the only sign you're going to see is the sign of Jonah three days in the belly of the well, so the son of man three days in the earth. But understand that just like Jonah had a calling and assignment from God, if you are in this room saved by grace through faith, you and I have a calling and assignment from Christ. You and I have a calling. Just listen to the words of Scripture. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You and I have a calling in Christ in which we are commissioned to make disciples. And it involves going. It means it involves effort. Not just, hey, that sounds good, Pastor, amen. Let's like that on Facebook. It involves effort. It involves evangelizing. It involves sharing the message of the gospel. No one can become a disciple. No one can, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing what the word of God. It not only involves evangelism, but then it would involve someone responding to that message of the gospel. Conversion, coming to faith in Christ, and then us teaching them to be obedient and follow through on the witness of baptism, just like we saw Max do today. It's not just that, but, but there's even more after baptism. It's to teach them. It's to teach them. It's to teach them to continue to grow and to grow up into maturity, to be disciple-making disciples who glorify the Lord. We are called, we are commissioned to make disciples, church family. Not only that, but Jesus tells us in Acts 1.8 that you will receive power. You will receive the ability to actually do it when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You and I don't just have a commission to make disciples, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us giving us the ability to actually do it. The power to fulfill the commission lives within us. Which means you and I lack nothing to be able to be part of making disciples. You and I can't get before the Lord and say, Lord, I just, if you had just given me the the mind and eloquence of Billy Graham, I could have been more apart. False. I gave you something better than the mind and eloquence of Billy Graham. I gave you the Holy Spirit. Not only that, we're, we're, we're called to give this account. We're called to provide this witness with grace and respect. Peter, writing, writing individuals suffering for their faith, suffering for standing for the truth, says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and do this with gentleness and reverence. Do this with gentleness, with graciousness towards those who are being hostile and trying to attack you. You give an answer, not, not in rude, not in anger, not in, not in confront, but you do it with gentleness and you do it in reverence. You do it understanding you fear the Lord and that person to whom you are addressing is a person the Lord loves and is bearing the image of God. We've got to be careful, church family, as things ratchet up and we walk in this mission that we have the right motivation, that it's not a motivation to say, hey, we're right and we want to make sure you get it wrong, you, you know you're wrong and stuff it and jab it in your face and shoot sharp barbs. No, we do it with gentleness and grace. In the example of our Savior who on a cross dying wrongfully said, not, Father, slay them for what they're doing is unjust, but Father, forgive them. They have no clue what they're doing. Who had compassion looking out on sheep without a shepherd. We do it with grace and respect. We're called to be faithful in this mission, whether we see results or not. Second Timothy, Paul charges Timothy and he says, Be ready in season or out of season. And he's not referencing be ready when you're prepared or when you're not prepared. What he's saying is you be ready when it's in season and you see fruit falling from the trees and there are people responding and you be prepared and you be faithful out of season when you don't see any response, when it seems like it's dry, when you are scattering seed left and right and no one seems responding, you be ready. And church family, we're called to do all of this together as we live and proclaim truth. Paul speaking about this in Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16, he says, speaking the truth in love. 
As a body in Christ, we're to grow up as a body into all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together with every joint supplies grows into maturity, talking about no longer being, being uh, uh, tossed on waves to and fro like that boat with Jonah, but, but mature, knowing what is truth, knowing what is right. We're to do it together, speaking the truth in love. Church family, understand, we need to understand today and embrace. We have to heed. There is a call of Christ upon our lives by the fact that you and I are saved by grace through faith. And inherently in this call, there is a prophetic element to it. And here's what I mean by that. The call that we have in Christ is to speak the truth in grace and love. There's a prophetic element because it means in speaking the truth, we have to say sin is in fact sin. We have to say that God is in fact a holy God who is just and righteous and justly will deal with sin. It means that we have to speak all of God's truth about all of issues. It's why we can unapologetically say that, that as believers following the Lord, we are unapologetically pro-life conception to the last breath because that's our God. It's why we can say that God's design... It's why we can say that God's design for human sexuality is good and right because it's his design. It's why we can say, go on down. It's why we can say Jesus is, in fact, the only way. And by the way, church family, the way we speak these things should always be under the guise of every aspect of who God is and God's truth is good. Amen. It's not bad. It's bad to, to someone who wants their own way, but it's good. It's, it's hope. When we speak these truths, we are offering hope and truth and life because Christ is life. There is inherently a prophetic role because in proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming who Christ is and proclaiming the truth of who God is and God's opinions on things, his heart on things, we have to speak God's word to the situation we find ourselves in correctly, faithfully, and in the same spirit with which Christ does it. Which is why we must heed his call and we must not run from his call. Understand, church family, because the calling we have in Christ is inherently prophetic in that way, there is a temptation to run from the call. There's a temptation to run. We can run in, in a variety of ways. We can run like Jonah where we go, wow, God, you want me to talk to that person? Wow, God, you want me? Ooh, here's this conversation in the office, an opportunity to share truth. You want me to do that? No, in fact, I'm going to go the polar opposite way. We can do that. We can say, God, I don't want any part of what your calling is. I want to be your child, but I don't want to have to go out there. We can run, but more oftentimes probably what we do is we run from his calling, from his calling by staying put. Jonah ran by, Jonah at least is, is really authentic. God, I don't want to go there. I'm going the opposite way as far as I can. Well, most of us would do is say, oh God, I, I, hear, I hear your call. I hear your call to go make this. I hear your call to speak truth. And maybe you're even laying someone specific on, on my heart. And I'm just going to stay right here in worship. I'm going to sing all sorts of great songs in your temple and stay put. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to run. 
but I'm not going to go. I'm just going to run by staying put. Or maybe we run away by getting distracted and coming to a point we distract ourselves with so many cares and concerns of the world that we become numb to the compelling of Christ. We can run in a variety of ways. There's a variety of reasons we run. We can run because of a fear of loneliness. Understand, to follow Christ will at times put you in lonely positions. Even Jesus, with his disciples, experienced loneliness at times. If you're going to follow Christ, there are going to be times you will have to stand out glaringly And we cannot allow the fear or the want to fit in. It's normal for every human being to want to fit in. That's just part of being human. But we cannot allow that want to cause us to fear loneliness to where we run from his calling. We can fear loneliness. We can fear fear danger. And let's be honest. How many of you going around on the country, did we think we would see a day when there would be nationally called for protests of churches? Now, let's not just pick on current events. Here's the reality. You and I speak the truth of the gospel. You say Jesus is the only way in a pluralistic world. You say any truth of Christ. There is a true danger. Maybe it's a danger to reputation. Maybe it's a danger to promotion. Maybe it's true danger, which most of our brothers and sisters around the world are far more familiar with than us because their lives are threatened for them to say Jesus loves you. There's a fear of danger. It's not just a fear of danger. Maybe there's a fear of grace. We'll see this theme more as we come through Jonah. And it's interesting, in in Jonah 1, we don't know the reason why Jonah flees. We'll get there, by the way. It's in a couple weeks. Chapter 4 tells us. But maybe it's a fear of grace. Maybe the reason we run from God's calling to step into the midst of a broken, messy, uh, hurting, damaged, baggaged world where there is danger of loneliness, where there is danger of hurt, where there is danger of sorrow, especially if we stand with Christ, and especially if we stand how Christ stands, where we go, you know what? I'm not trying to stand here because I'm, I'm um, a type A lion who just wants to rip people to shreds. I'm standing here in grace willing to suffer for it. If we stand with Christ in his truth, his way, maybe there's a fear of grace in the sense of I am watching people who are so vile, who are so wicked, who are so heinous, and the thought that they could just get off the hook and hear and receive the forgiveness of grace of God, it just makes, it makes that just part of me mad. Maybe there's a fear of grace. Maybe there's an anger and a bitterness towards those who are walking, and it, it leads us to run. But understand, church family, prophets must live and proclaim truth when they're scared when they're attacked, when they're abandoned, when they're hurting, when they're confused, when they're tired. When you look throughout, when you look throughout the Old Testament, you find that many of the prophets battled despair. Some of them, even Jeremiah, had a, had a period of time where he ran. Now, I'm not saying all of us are prophets in the room. What I am saying is that you and I in Christ and in God's calling in our life, there is a prophetic element to that calling and proclaiming and telling a lost and dying and broken world the truth of who Christ is, of living out that truth in our lives. It's both proclamation and, and living it out. There's a real temptation to run in a variety of ways for a variety of reasons, but understand, church family, there is a danger if we run. 
A time doesn't permit. There's a danger to our own relationship with the Lord. Jonah's out of the line. But the danger you and I really see in the text, I mean, hear the question, hear the question of the captain. How is it that you are sleeping? How is it that you're asleep? How is it that you are totally, you've shut yourself, your sensory off to all of the danger that the calamity that's taking place around? How is it you are sleeping? Church family, when you and I run from God's calling, from the calling of Christ in our lives, hear the world cry out, how could you do this? How could you who know the truth stay silent? How are you who knows the hope, the only hope for this miserable world? How can you stay silent? How can you who's been reconciled to Christ choose to live and act and think like the rest of us who don't? How could you? Why are you sleeping, church? There's a danger. There's a danger. But praise God, church family. That for those of us who are in Christ by grace through faith, there is a real calling, a real ministry, a real mission that we are called to in Christ. There is a real threat of running, but praise God that if we choose to run, we serve a God who comes after us. We serve a God who comes after us. Notice, God is not okay with Jonah running. God comes after him with gracious and pursuing discipline. And is the discipline tough? Yeah, the discipline's tough. I would say a great and mighty storm at sea, tossing and turning, where the only way to fix it is getting thrown into the open ocean. I would say that's tough. But it's reflective of God's grace coming after, not content to go, well, fine, Jonah, you don't want anything to do with me? Well, fine, I don't want anything to do with you. No, that's not how it works. If you and I are in a relationship with God through the blood of Christ Jesus, it's called a covenant. And it's why Paul says, even if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God doesn't fail his covenant. God doesn't fail his work in our lives. God doesn't fail his work through our lives. He comes after us. He brings discipline out of love, according to Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12. We see that throughout here. He initially allows some time. How, how, many, how much on that time has Jonah journeyed to Joppa? Were there second thoughts? Maybe the Lord speaking. What are you doing, Jonah? He allowed time. He works through circumstances, the storm, the lots falling on Jonah, the fish appointed. When you and I run, God will use and orchestrate circumstances to get our attention, to wake us up. God won't just use circumstances. He'll he'll work through even hard circumstances, calamity, things like the storm. He works through kindness. Do you see how caring the crew is? Oh, you're saying, Jonah, I mean, if I'm the crew, Jonah, you're saying if I throw you overboard, the storm stops and we live, boom. They go, hang on, hang on, we'll try to keep you alive. We're going to row, we're going to fight, we're going to put, oh, you're not rowing, but we're going to row to get you back to land so God can deal with you there. Sometimes God tries to wake us up not through just discipline that is hard, but through his kindness, which is why Scripture tells us not to regard the kindness of God lightly. Sometimes he speaks through others. Can you imagine the startle of Jonah? Who knows what he's dreaming about? Captain wakes him up, and he hears the Lord's words through the captain. 
God will speak through others to wake us up, to pursue after us, to call us back. Our job is to respond to, to repent, to rest in God's gracious pursuing discipline. And the reason we must heed his call, the reason we must not run, the reason we must respond to and rest in his gracious pursuing discipline is because we have to see and understand clearly his heart. Now, we're going to expound this throughout the rest, so I'm not going to go into to everything uh, that we could today. We'll see it in the rest of the book. But understand, we need to see and proclaim God's heart because we understand his heart. We take up his call. We, do, we choose not to run. And if we run, we choose to come back. We see that God's heart is righteous and justice. God sees the wickedness, this, this horrible heinousness of the Ninevites, and he's going to deal with it. It's why he sends Jonah. But we also see that, that, that God is merciful and loving. He's, he's sending Jonah to go proclaim, hey, Ninevites, repent, because if you don't, then there will be this destruction. God wants to see those Ninevites, those, those wicked Ninevites who are Themselves too, sheep without a shepherd. To see them brought back, they too are image bearers of God. We see God's heart is patient and steadfast. He's given Nineveh a long time. We see his, his patience and steadfastness. We see so much wickedness in our world, church family. And we go, God, why haven't you just brought it all down? Well, because God is patient and steadfast. Willing that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. All won't come to know him, but he sure desires it. Because ultimately, God's heart is this way because God's heart is for life. God's heart is at work seeking to save sinners whose sin deserves fairly eternal death. He wants to reconcile to themselves as sons and daughters adopted forevermore. Understand, church family, the only hope for life in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have been called to be on that mission with Christ. Things may get worse in our world, but things surely will not get better if there is not awakening to Jesus Christ. And there will not be awakening to Jesus Christ if you and I are slumbering in the sleep running from his call. If you and I are distracted by knitting the nets running from his call. If you and I are living in fear of the storm of danger rather than in the awe and respect and fear of God. Church family, we've come upon hard times. Who knows if they'll last or they won't. There's a great scene in, in one of my favorite movies in Lord of the Rings. It's towards the beginning of their journey and they're in the mines of Moria. It's, it's, it's been Frodo's first taste as he has this calling to take, to take this ring. The only hope for all of Middle Earth is to take this ring and, and to put it in a place no one can get to. And he seems to be the one elected for it. He's already seen sacrifice and danger. He once wanted adventure, but this is far more than what he ever expected. And he's sitting near Gandalf in the dark. And he makes this statement. He says to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And church family, just like that, it's easy for us today to look around and go, man, I wish that things were calmer. I wish things were the way they used to be. I wish things weren't seeming to always go from worse to worse to worse. I wish things, that is normal that any of us would wish that. But Gandalf looks at Frodo and he says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. 
You and I, church family, don't get to decide whether we live in the rise or fall of Nineveh. God sovereignly has appointed us the time of our birth, what age we live in, but goodness, church family, you and I in Christ have to decide what will we do with the time that is given to us. Will we heed his call or will we run? And if we're running today, will we see his gracious and good heart for life pursuing after us, calling us back? And if so, may we respond and not wait. Let's pray. Father, there's not a one of us in this room who are saved that are saved because you slept. Every one of us in this room who are saved are saved because you first sought us. Because you first loved us. So Father, may we not sleep. Jesus, may we not sleep. If we are in you, if we have been saved by grace, may we not sleep and slumber on your call. It is a scary world, Lord. And sometimes it's very scary. But Lord, may our hearts be soft. May our hands be open. May our spirits be willing. May our, may our feet be active. May we go. May we go and proclaim the hope and the truth and the joy of the fullness of who you are on each and every issue we would see men and women, boys and girls saved by the same very good grace that has saved us, Lord, that is actively working that salvation out and Lord, that same grace that you will use to bring us home. Jesus, we look to you now as we respond. It's in your name.